I have a payload to deliver and it's going to take me a, a little while to get there. When I say a little while, it's not going to take an hour to get there. Just intercede now, okay? And it won't take an hour to get there. Um, it will take a moment or two to get there. So if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 16, um, I, will, uh, I will pick up there in a moment. Matthew chapter 16. We have been on this journey around taking ground and over the last month or two, we've talked about spiritual warfare. We've talked about dealing with strongholds. We've talked about prayer and intercession. We've talked about, talked about powerlessness versus powerful thinking, all in the context of we're actually here to take ground, which has really been the theme for the last year and a half is that this is a season where God is saying to us, it's time to take ground. And we have focused a lot on taking ground internally, which often precedes or at least runs parallel to taking ground externally. And the, the sense that the Father has been jealous for our hearts and jealous to take ground on the inside. And um, as we have progressed over the last month or so, we're now starting to move into more taking ground around us, taking ground through us. So we talked about spiritual warfare um, a few weeks ago. We, we kind of did an intro to spiritual warfare. I know Deb did an amazing job last week, yeah? Yes. Yes. I'm sorry, that was not enough of a big kind of... She did an amazing job last week. That still wasn't... She did an amazing job last week. Like, that's a whole lot better. You should have done that the first time, really. <laughs> You're a little red, babe. What's going on? Anyway, um... Should we do it again? I think she did an amazing job last week. I mean, <laughs> like the, the heavens just opened and just fell because I wasn't here. And she finished on time. See, you know that revival is here when I do that. So pray. Like I said, if you pray, miracles could happen. My wife has the Kronos anointing. I seem to have the Kairos anointing, and that means, you know, when I'm finished, I'm finished. <laughs> Bill Johnson used to always say, if you get done before I do, just go, you know. <laughs> it's probably a good piece of advice. So let's go there, Matthew chapter 16. So taking ground outside of us, we talked about spiritual warfare, we talked about authority in the heavenly realms and in the earthly realm. That leads us to this verse where Jesus has this encounter with Peter, where he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And, you know, it's, you know, the, the standard answer. You know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then Peter, this is the one time Peter opens his mouth and just exclaims something and it doesn't go bad for him. <laughs> I so can relate to that guy, like more than I can possibly begin to tell you. He just opens his mouth and goes, so shouldn't have done that. But in this case, well, Pentecost was another time where he opened his mouth and it worked out pretty good. Yeah, a couple of thousand people getting saved. Um, that's a pretty good day. But he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for man is not revealed to you, but my father who is in, in heaven. And then he says to this guy, whose name is Simon, which incidentally means reed. That's what his name meant, reed, like, you know, swayed easily in the wind. And he said, you are Peter, that name means rock. So in a moment, as he confessed the lordship of Jesus, Jesus changed his identity from one who was blown about in the wind to one who was a rock, 
one that nothing blows around. Now, that word um, means little rock. And then he says, on this rock, big rock, meaning the confession of who I am, I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, this is 16 chapters into Matthew's gospel. And you would think by now he would have said something about church. But this is actually the first time Jesus mentions church. He only mentions it twice in the whole of scripture, both in the book of Matthew. 114 times he mentions the word kingdom. Twice he mentions church. That's another message. Don't get sidetracked or we'll be laid out here. He says, I will build my church. The word he uses there is a fascinating word because it wasn't a a religious word at all. It had no religious connotations attached to it. It wasn't like, um, I will build my synagogue or I will build my temple. That word ecclesia is the Greek word. If you've heard of something ecclesiastical, you know, churchy, that's kind of where it comes from. But this is way more powerful than that. He said, what he did was he took a secular concept, much like he did, if you've heard me talk about the apostolic and the apostle, apostle was not a concept that was in any way among the people of God at all. It was a secular Greco-Roman concept that Jesus said, he took a concept that was well known. Oh, yes, Jesus. Pay no attention to the Tim Tams that Megan just walked in. There's a whole packet of them. It was for the guests. I wasn't here last week. Does that make me a guest? Thanks. Yes. Going to save that for a poignant moment. This will be a reward for actually pressing through, okay, rather than having it now and rewarding, wasting time. So, thanks, Megs. Um, what was I talking about? Tim Tams, wasn't it? Apostles. <laughs> Apostles. Thank you, Grant. That's okay. You gave me a Tim Tam. All's forgiven. Um, Jesus borrowed a term that was known secularly, but wasn't among the religious people. It wasn't among the Hebrews, the Jews. It wasn't one of their terms. He took that and he said, here is a concept all of you know about because you're living, because Israel was living under Roman occupation at the time. So they were, you've heard the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Romans were really serious about enculturating the, the territories that they took. And so he took a concept that was familiar with them, with the apostles, And an apostle was a Roman military general general who would go into a conquered land and was responsible for making the culture of that conquered land like the culture of the empire of Rome. And when he called the disciples, he said, you're my apostles. He pointed to a secular term that they knew exactly what it meant. And then he infused it with kingdom DNA. In other words, for them, you are for the apostles, you are to take the culture of heaven and ensure that the culture of heaven is established in the earth. Get the idea. Likewise, ecclesia was not a Hebrew Jewish term. If anyone lived in a city that had a government or worked in a business that had a leadership, they would have been familiar with the term ecclesia. It was like a parliament. It was a legislative body that was in the marketplace doing governmental business, deciding what was... what what could go and what could not go in that city. That was the concept of the Ecclesia. I wrote something better than that down. Let me read it. 
So this is actually a quote from Ed Silvoso. He said, during the days when Jesus walked this earth, however, ecclesia, the Greek word translated into English as church, was not religious in nature or connotation at all. In fact, by the time he first uttered the word in the Gospel of Matthew, it had been in use for centuries in both the Greek and Roman empires to refer to, here it is, a secular institution operating in the marketplace in a governmental capacity. So Jesus stole that term from the world, infused it with kingdom DNA and said, that is what I'm going to build. There right there is a picture of what I'm about. Now that was way different to the temple or the synagogue concept that they were used to, which was a building, a static institution where you would turn up to at particular times and do religious duties. Is anyone getting nervous yet? You should be, just a little. Reason being, I want to suggest that a lot of our concept of church is more like the temple synagogue concept. It's a static place that has a building which you turn up to at pre-prescribed times and go through spiritual stuff. And that wasn't what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church. Otherwise, he would have used, you know, I will build my temple, but the temple will be greater in glory and all that. He He used a completely different term yet one that they were very familiar with. Now, here's an interesting thing. The Ecclesia had an interesting um, concept attached to it, and this was called the Conventus. Now, Rome was this, um, this empire that was set upon world domination. And it was very, what's that? So true. So true, I know, I know. Robert Warren. Just the concept of global domination just started to get me excited, but coming down. Yeah, excellent. Um, Rome, occupation. Tim Tim, who said that? No. Bind that spirit of Conventus. That's where I was going. Bind that spirit of distraction. Conventus. So that, Rome was this empire, you know, it so, it so did. It got me back there eventually. Fire, a long detour. Um, because they were, dis- they were set on global dominion, th- the emperor of Rome had certain practices that basically ensured that no matter where Roman citizens were, they were looked after. And this thing called the conventus meant that when there were two or three Roman citizens connecting, then the authority, power, laws, and protection of the emperor were in their midst. Does that sound familiar at all? So when Jesus said, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst, he is again borrowing a concept from Roman society and saying, that is my ecclesia. All it takes is two or three of you to be gathered and there I am. But all it takes is two or three Roman citizens to be gathered and the protection of the emperor is in the midst. If you go to Acts chapter 22, Paul, as usual, is getting beaten up and thrown before um, the Sanhedrin in this case, and then gets brought before the Roman authorities, and he's about to be flogged. And if you remember the story, he says, ah, you're going to do this to a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And they all suddenly go, whoa. And they back right off because they know if he's a Roman citizen, he's entitled to the protection of the emperor. This is the concept of the conventus. This is what Jesus was borrowing. 
And he says that when two or three of you are gathered, then the authority, the protection, the, the principles and laws of the kingdom are present in your midst as you gather. So this thing called the Ecclesia, it was a body of people gathered together to do governmental business over their city or over their region. That is a very different concept to a static building where you come together to do spiritual activities, get refueled, get refreshed, get fired up and go off into your week that has nothing to do with what you've just done. Don't ask me to say that again. <laughs> you get the idea? What, say it again? It's not written down. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just not there. So this was a decision-making body or institution, for want, of better, for want of a better word, that was society impacting in the same way that a parliament or the, um, the leadership team of a business. Now, let me read again from Ed Silvoso. He said, instead, Ecclesia, whether in the embryonic expression of the conventors, which is the two or three, or in the more expansive version, which is the church of the city, was designed as the vehicle to inject the leaven of the kingdom of heaven into the dough of society so that first people, then cities, and eventually nations would be discipled. In the same way that Rome made its presence, power, and culture felt in the far reaches of its empire, Jesus designed his ecclesia to make presence, power, and culture known with a revolutionary caveat that it gave the upper hand. Now get this, it would have authority to legislate in both, in both the visible and invisible realms so that the gates of Hades could not prevail in either realm. That's the idea of us. That, this, is what, this is who we are. When Jesus says, I will build that, I will build my church, it's not our concept of I'll build this amazing building, this amazing property where you'll have these incredible programs. And look, that's all good stuff. Like if we're actually serving society and make a world a better place, that's really good. It just falls short of the design that Jesus had. And that is that we were to be a legislative body that would actually determine what comes and goes in our city. That's a, that's a really, really big deal. I have much more to say on that next week, perhaps. But at first, I want us to get the idea, what is this thing called the Ecclesia? I need some water. What is this thing called the Ecclesia that Jesus said he would build? It's a, it's a legislative governing body that when we come together, we make decisions, we make decrees about what comes and goes in the invisible and the visible realm in our city. Get the idea? Okay. So he says, against that, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, a little bit of background. This conversation happened in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was a, a relative, even though it was in Israel, it was a relatively non-Jewish place. So this was a place where Jesus could take his disciples. Why am I doing walking with my fingers? <laughs> Can't talk without my hands. This is a place where Jesus, I'm trying not to do it and I'm going to do it, as I say. <sighs> Down. What, this? I've just done it like five times. So Jesus, <laughs> Jesus could be behind <laughs> that spirit of distraction. So Jesus could be with his disciples without distraction, but what is around him is fascinating. 
Caesarea Philippi was the birthplace of the Greek god called Pan. So where he is, um, where they are sitting is surrounded by shrines to all sorts of different places. It was an incredibly both spiritual and occultic center. Um, It was the home of Caesar worship. Caesarea was there for a reason. It was the home of where they started to worship and call Caesar God. And the gates of Hades was actually a physical place. It was a cave in Caesarea Philippi where human and animal sacrifices were offered to demon gods. So this wasn't just a metaphorical kind of thing that he was talking, even though he was using that as a metaphor, it was a very literal thing in the city of Caesarea Philippi that represented, if you like, in, in Pan, the, the, god, the god Pan, the, the spirituality of the world, the worship of Caesar, which is the governmental stuff of the world, and then the gates of Hades, which was the occultic stuff. In all of those realms, that was the realm that they were surrounded by, that Jesus chose to have this conversation. And then he says, the gates of Hades, which was essentially the worst possible place where they would do human and animal sacrifices to demon gods. He said, that place is not going to prevail against my ecclesia. In other words, that is the the worst possible place where darkness is as dark as darky the dark dark for want of a better term, it is as dark as it can possibly be. Every corruption, spiritually, governmentally, or cultishly, would not prevail against the ecclesia. Now, for that to be true, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Those words prevail against gives the implication that something's coming at the gates of Hades. So for this scripture to be true, the ecclesia actually has to be in an advancing position and in proximity to the gates of Hades. Which is a tad different to being in church, doing nice spiritual stuff at predefined and predetermined times. Though again, as you know, by this I'm not against that. This is a good thing. Don't, don't hear me not saying that. What I'm trying to get us is, what is the full design for what you and I are created for? So it's a picture of an army, a legislative governmental army with authority to legislate in the second heaven and first heaven such that the gates of hell are exposed to this advancing force and they can't stop it. Now, too much of the motif of church as we know it has been getting away from evil. And this is the exact opposite. This is running right in the direction of it. Because to advance against the gates of Hades, we have to have proximity to them. So what are the gates of Hades? What are the gates of hell in our city and our region? Because every region has their own, if you like, gates of hell has a lot to do with its history, has a lot to do with its first peoples. We could go into that for quite some time. It has a lot to do with decisions, covenants that were made, covenants that were broken, blood that gets spilt on the land. It has a lot to do with all that kind of stuff that builds a stronghold where the enemy can go, I'm going to call here home because there's legal authority to operate. Now, if I was to ask, what are some of the key gates of hell in our region? I would say, if I take the 
The opposite is what is heaven wanting to do? Heaven wants to eradicate poverty in every form. Spiritual, emotional, physical, mental, financial. He wants to eradicate poverty in every realm. And if I was to say, where is a realm, especially in this area, in Sydney, in this country, where the gates of hell manifest, I want to suggest one of the biggest ones is actually in the emotional realm. Anxiety, depression. Woof! On the way up. Accelerating at a rapid rate, partly because we know more about it than we knew before, which is awesome. This is great. We need wisdom and understanding in that realm to help people break through. But this is a key place where the gates of hell manifest in our culture. We've got all the... like Just in this room... I'm not doing the sums on all of your incomes, by the way, because I can't count that high. (laughs) Prophesy that. But in this country, we are in like the top 2% of 2% of wealth in the world. So if you just live in this area, you're doing awesome (laughs) compared to global standard. Would that be fair as one who's lived in one of the poorest nations in the world? Yeah, we, we are... So ridiculously blessed, even if we're doing it, doing it tough here is doing better than 98% of the rest of the world. So prosperity isn't so much, and that's not in any way minimizing some of the financial struggles and hardships people go through, the stuff that we're trying to break through. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But I think one of the key ways that hell manifests in our culture is in the emotional realm. Which means if we are going up against the gates gates of hell, we need to be up against that stuff in our city. We need to be part of the solution to that. So how do we advance against the gates of hell? Well, we know as we read the New Testament, one of the characteristics of the ecclesia is it's apostolic in nature. Now, I've taught on that a number of times before. I don't have time to go into it all right now. But the apostolic anointing, one of its primary facets is that it's a fathering anointing. Now, we know from social statistics, and this isn't to in any way denigrate mothering because mothering has an incredibly important role. But what we know is when you take fathers out of a society, crime goes up, addiction goes up, more people fill our prisons. When you have a fatherless city, bad things happen. So one of the ways that we advance is as the ecclesia... We adopt our region and we say, you are no longer fatherless. You are no longer an orphan city. We adopt you. We will take responsibility and authority for what comes and goes in this city on our watch. That's the nature of the ecclesia. That's what the ecclesia does. And it always does it with a fathering heart. See, God is a father to the fatherless, but he does that through his body. He does that as you and me are like God with skin on going out into the community and loving on people that need it. More on that in weeks to come because one of the things you see in the book of Acts is one of the ways that the church gained authority was through social justice, was by meeting real needs. And I'm going to ask Frosty to unload on us in a month or so's time around that because this is an anointing that he carries particularly brilliantly. Stay tuned for that. You will probably cry. And if you don't, I sure as heck will. 
So one of the ways we advance is we need to understand where the gates of hell are in our city and we need to start coming at it with a father heart that says, I will father that orphan woundedness out of our city. But this has to be corporate. This can't just be individual. This can't just be me. This can't just be one person. This is a corporate mandate. Now, if any of you know me, and most of you do, yeah, yeah, mostly, you would know that I am one of the biggest proponents of individual destiny. You will know that one of my passions is to help you uncover how you are wired to to bring light and illumination onto that thing to release you into the thing that you are uniquely created to do. It's one of the things I love. Absolutely, absolutely love it. But we need to be clear here because that promise of the gates of hell prevailing is not a promise to an individual. It's, It's to a body. It's to a corporate entity. The ecclesia is a corporate entity. So here's the thing. If you're pursuing individual destiny dislocated from the body, then your authority is relegated to the physical scene realm. Because, we talked about this a few weeks back, spiritual authority in the unseen realm, which is what it takes to break open cities, regions, nations is given to the church, the ecclesia, the gathered, the corporate body. Yeah, Paul uses this. this yeah, if, what does he say? He says something about something. No, he says, yeah, if my eye decides I should not be part of the body. You know, this, this sense of yeah, my hand decides, I, know, I need to go and do some stuff. So the hand separates from the body and goes off all by itself. There it goes, walkies again. It's, although it's still attached. If it does that for longer than a few minutes, I don't know, tell me, oh, great doctor, <laughs> how long would it take before that hand is really dead? I would probably bleed to death first. Yes, good point. Every analogy falls down somewhere. So should have checked this with you beforehand. But about the hand, <laughs> I mean, we could say you're doing damage to the body by walking off, but um, how long would it take before that hand is... I'll have the gym town now. I reckon it'll be shorter than that, but anyway. If you stick it in ice in an esky, yes, sure. Do you get the idea? All right, let's, let's, let's go with that then. So here's the thing. The ecclesia is the thing that Jesus said he would build. He actually didn't say, I'll build your individual destiny. And you know, I say that as one who is a big fan of helping you find your place. But he said, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. In Ephesians 3 verse 10, it talks about the manifold wisdom of God and that, that talked about it before, that, that is creativity in action. That word manifold is an absolutely pregnant word in Greek that if you can imagine every possible colour on the earth and then multiply it by a number bigger than you can think of, you're starting to get an idea of what that word means. It literally means many coloured, but it's not just red and yellow and pink and green, purple and orange and blue. It's way more than that. There is this creative thing in nature 
but it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. In other words, it's the ecclesia, not the individual, that's given authority to break open cities, regions, and nations. So if you isolate and pursue your destiny alone, separate from the body, you count yourselves out of that authority and out of those promises. And I just reckon it's just not real smart. That's my, my, my humble personal opinion. We, we are in a time right now where, at least in my life experience, more good people are disconnected from the body of Christ than I think I've ever seen in my lifetime. And it's absolutely tragic. Now, I know, because let me tell you, I've, I've had many temptations in my life to disconnect and dislocate myself from the body. I've had many opportunities and many justifications to go, you know what, I'm done with that. The body is not perfect. But we can't give up on the idea because Jesus hasn't changed his plan. He hasn't gone, wow, the church got really dysfunctional, so how about we go to plan B, which will be a bunch of individual spiritual people encountering angels. And He didn't do that. It's, the plan is still the same. One of the things I want to suggest, because many of us have had some, what's the, I'm looking for a deeply spirit, intensely crappy experiences. That's what I'm trying to find. Intensely crappy experiences with church. And there are going to be a whole lot of people that are listening to this podcast because there's a lot more that listen to it outside of those who are in the room that would go, yep, I've had some intensely crappy experiences. One of the, the payload, the burden I felt I was carrying today, and it only got stronger and stronger as we got in worship, is this sense that we have to be reconciled with the bride. Like, we're in a critical time right now. The world needs the body of Christ, the ecclesia, more than ever before to step into its place because our world is more fractured, it's more divided. Um, so much of the things that we hold dear that are healthy are under attack in ways like never before. And it needs us to step up and be who we're created to be. Like I said, the ecclesia is the key to breaking open regions, cities, nations. You will never, as an individual, reach your fullness alone. No matter what you feel you're carrying, no matter what you feel is on your life, you will never reach the fullness of your destiny, the fullness of who Christ in you is in expression alone because it goes against God's design. And just because the bride has fallen short of the design of heaven for a couple of centuries, let's get real, doesn't mean we get to check out because he hasn't changed his plan. I've said it. I know others have said it. I gave my all to the church and it didn't work out so well for me. I'm not sure I'm up for it again. 
And there'll be people listening to the podcast, and I, I, kind of, I feel a burnt why I'm saying it. I don't normally say this and talk to people on the podcast, but, but there'll be some of you out there that this has been your thing, that you've said, you know, I gave all once, I gave all twice, I gave all three times. It didn't go so well. I don't know if I can do it again. But Jesus is deeply, deeply in love with his bride. And he is working to present her perfect. And we need to be part of the solution, not check out and be part of the problem. See, he wants to build something absolutely beautiful. For those of us that have been hurt, that have been wounded in the body, we need the heart journey. All the stuff we talk about all the time, we need to do the heart journey. We need to learn to forgive and we need to rediscover his design for the ecclesia. And then we need to fall in love again with what Jesus is in love with. And as we were winding up worship, I just had this, this almost, this intercessory groan in my spirit. And I could hear Jesus saying, I love my bride. I love my bride. I love my bride. Fall in love with my bride again. Revelation 21. If you want to get an idea of heaven's picture of the bride... Follow this along with you, Revelation 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plays came and said to me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Listen to that language. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's how heaven sees us as the ecclesia together. That that's what we need to get the picture of again. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. This is the bride. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Do you want to come up, Dan? We're going to go into ministry in just a sec. Thanks, buddy. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. It was as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. This is the description of the bride. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold and as pure as transparent glass. 
I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb its lamp. Get this. This is the result of this is this is the bride and the result of the bride in full manifestation. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. What this show this is a picture of this stunning, stunning city. That is the wife of the Lamb. And it shows the kings of the earth. And the nations of the earth being presented like a procession as a gift to the king of kings from the bride. not perfect yet but that's what he is building that's what he is building and I just felt his burden to say will you love what I love will you love what I love I know you've been hurt I know you've been screwed I know you've been disappointed you've been used But will you let me touch you and will you let me heal you? Will you discover my design for my bride for whom I shed my blood? And will you let me make you together into that picture? such that the beauty and the glory of the bride causes the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth to come streaming. Ultimately, right at the end of the book, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, it's the spirit and the bride together that say to Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. It's that call of the Holy Spirit and the bride that Jesus, that the Spirit of God has been working in to build since Jesus died and rose again. And those two together in perfect unity say, come, Lord Jesus. Come and fulfill everything that was designed in your heart from the foundation of the earth. That's an us together. I just heard him saying, will you love what I love? Imperfect though it may be, broken, dysfunctional though it may be, will you allow yourself to fall in love with my bride the way I have? It's time to reconcile to the bride.
It's time to reconcile to the bride. It's time for us to stop asking him to bless what we are building. And let's get reconciled with what he is building. And in doing so, we discover more of who we are than we ever would otherwise. Can we stand? I feel like this is a pivotal moment. Not just, yes, right now. But this is a pivotal season. It's like there is, it's like this is a Kairos moment where there is a window of opportunity open. Where the decisions that we make now will reverberate for decades and decades. And I just keep hearing Jesus and I, I, I feel the ache of his heart. that says, will you love what I love? Will you love my wife? Will you love my bride? The the picture in Song of Songs of that woman that is being pursued, where it says right in the beginning of Song of Songs, dark I am yet lovely. In those days, tan skin was not an attractive thing. And this was a woman who, instead of being beautified in in chambers and kept her skin perfect and, and white as it was in those days, her skin was tanned and dark because she had been forced to work out in the fields because of the poverty and as a result, the effect of the sun on her skin made her tanned, and, and that was not the attractive thing in those days. And so when it says right at the beginning of Song of Songs, dark I am yet lovely, essentially she's saying, I am not what the world looks at and calls beautiful. And yet is the apple of the eye of the groom who pursues her relentlessly. And we may look at the bride right now and go, you know what, that, that's, that's not what I would choose. That's, that's, that's not real attractive. It's not real functional. Its body's not in proportion to its head. But yet, Jesus says, I love that bride. I love that woman. Will you love what I love? I just, just start to stir your spirit right now. Because for a whole lot of us in the room, there's different things that he's going to be doing. If you're carrying church wounds and, and disappointments and, and pain from past seasons, that may be stirring up right now. And simply ask him to touch those places that are still sore, that are still broken, those places where where you're saying, I can't do this again. I just can't do this again. And Jesus saying simply, will you love what I love? Will you let me embrace you in your pain? 
and let me show you the design that I've created for my bride. Will you love her into her fullness? Will you allow your heart to be knit to the bride in such a way that you will be part of seeing cities, nations, and the kings of the earth come and present their nation as a gift to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Are you in on that? Because that's what he is building. I just, I just feel like some of us just need to do some business with God about, yeah, just our hearts with church. So we're going to sing a song. Oh, just, do you want to just sing over us and see what happens? All right. <laughs> we're not going to structure a song, but I actually want to encourage you to just come down to this amazing mat that we've got here. Just come down and do some business with God and, and we just want to put our hand on you and just pray for you while you're doing that because God just really wants to bring some healing and if he's doing something right now, don't worry about what you need to do in 15 minutes. Just grab the moment and just be with him and just do your transaction and let us pray for you while you're doing that. I'm going to pray for us corporately and just even as I'm praying, if you're doing business with God, just start coming out position yourself now Jesus come and touch our broken our hurting our disappointed hearts God I want to pray for those as I said as I'm praying just start responding start doing your own business with God. God, I want to pray for those who have been wounded in the body by so-called friendly fire that was anything but friendly. That were wounded by, by leaders who were operating out of their own brokenness. That were wounded by brothers and sisters. for some of us that were wounded by some of our own decisions and our own brokenness and dysfunction. I know that was some of my story. And when you're broken in a family, you can only be healed in a family. So Lord, I, I want to pray for the grace for them to open their hearts to the body again so that they can be healed in a family. Lord, where we've joined with the voice of the accuser and accused the bride, we repent because we don't want to speak ill of the wife of the lamb. God, we, oh, we repent. We repent when we've accused your bride. Even though we were hurting, even though we were angry, we were disappointed, we felt ripped off, we felt stolen from. Lord, would you restore us 
Restore our hearts. Restore us to kingdom family again. If you feel like God's doing something, and I just want to pray for you and yeah, just love on you as you do that. I know so much church wounding often happens from leaders. And I want to stand as the leader, as the leader and the father of this house. And I want to repent. I want to identify with leaders who have hurt you. And I want to repent to you. In the name of Jesus and say, I'm sorry that you were hurt. I'm sorry that you were misunderstood. I'm sorry that you were used. I'm sorry that you weren't seen for who you really are. And on behalf of leaders, I repent for not treating you as the Father created you. I repent for not having the Father's heart for you. I repent for not knowing what to do. And as a result, hurting you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. On behalf of leaders, I ask for your forgiveness. And I ask you, would you open your heart again? Would you open your heart again?